Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My guest today is Dr. Sean Hanna. He's an experienced senior leader, scholar, and leader development expert, and he studies, teaches, and consults on exemplary leadership, leadership development, business ethics, strategy, strategic thinking, and building high-performing teams and organizations. Prior to his appointment to the Wilson Chair at Wake Forest, he served 25 years in the U.S. Army, retiring as a colonel. He served as the director of the Center for the Army Profession and Ethic and the director of leadership and management programs, both at West Point. He also served in command and staff positions in infantry units in Europe, Cuba, Panama, Southwest Asia, and the United States. In the Pentagon on 9-11, after the attack, he was reassigned to lead the reconstitution of the organization sustaining the highest casualty level and its multi-billion dollar operation. Sean is a fellow in both the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology and the Association for Psychological Science. He's an editor-in-chief of the Journal of Leadership and Organizational Studies, and he sits on the editorial boards of three major journals. He has published in the best journals in the world, and he has conducted over 600 executive education and consulting engagements in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and his clients include the likes of Microsoft, Deloitte, GE, IBM, MetLife, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and the training of 16 CEOs. It's an honor to have you on the show today, Sean. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, guys. Great to, to be on your, your program, and I appreciate the uh, the invitation. I, I think you, you covered my, my bio pretty good. I've been retired now for close to a decade from the Army and at Wake Forest University, so I've I begin to uh, to transfer over and uh, and focus on business and business management and leadership over the last uh, decade and kind of merge in the two together best practices from the military leadership best practices from business leadership and finding the uh, the best connections between the two to help leaders get better. Well, I love the perspective that you bring to this work, Sean, because you are an individual who has done the work and you are an individual who has studied the work. 
done the work at the highest levels and studied the work at the highest levels. And I think it's an incredibly unique and valuable perspective to have. Well, in your scholarship, a paper that you wrote, and, and Bruce Avolio and Doug May were on that article with you, that really stood out for me. It's really one of the first papers of yours that I that I read, and I used it as a centerpiece in a course on ethics that uh, that I taught four or five years ago. And it's it's your kind of thinking through moral thought and action. And this is a fascinating topic, right? Moral thought and action, because leaders are placed in so many different scenarios. Uh, at times, it can be incredibly gray. At times, having to make atrocious decisions. But how do you think about this topic? Help listeners kind of think through your process of thinking about moral thought and action. I know it's a big topic. No, it's a huge topic, Scott. I, I, you know, but it's it's one that I really felt, and so did Bruce and Doug, that we really needed to tackle. Um, there had been a lot of research in moral psychology over the years through people like Kohlberg and and Rest and others that have looked a lot at how people make decisions, and most of the research had been focused on how do people make decisions, which would be focused on the the stage they call moral judgment. But, you know, James Ress summarized the literature in a, a famous book of his where he shows that only about 20% of moral judgments actually manifest into action. That there's all kinds of reasons why people will and won't act on the judgments that may, they make. I mean, all the time. We walk down the street, we say, oh, somebody shouldn't do this or somebody should do that. And we make the these judgments all the time. But us as an individual taking action on those judgments when it's tough, when it needs moral courage, where we may have to confront a peer, confront a leader, do something that makes us uncomfortable, or just that, that need to take ownership over the situation and and not just say, you know, somebody ought to do something about that, but I ought to do something about that. So um, we really got into trying to determine this issue that the scholars call the, the judgment action gap between making that judgment and actually acting on it. So, you know, my career in the military, I've been faced with some pretty significant and severe moral ethical dilemmas. And I, I knew intuitively it's, it was a lot more than just being able to have the capacity to make decisions. When it gets tough and you need to act, that, that's really where the rubber meets the road. And so we designed a, a model that has two components, moral maturation on the one side, the, the maturity of the individual, the development of the individual so that they can make those tough decisions. And then on the other side, moral conation. And, and the word conation isn't used very much in common parlance, but it simply means the impetus to act. It's that orientation, that impetus, that, that readiness to act when, when we do make a judgment. And you can apply it to many things, not just morality, but moral conation is the impetus to act when you're faced with a moral situation. So those, those two major components, we spent a lot of time going into the literature and trying to tease out what helps people be more morally mature, able to make those right decisions, and then what also gives them the conation to act. And I, I can unpack that model for you. There's a lot of different subcomponents there, but you know, that's where the motivation came from. Well, yeah, you've got the, the moral complexity, the metacognitive ability, and moral identity. We talk a little bit about that side of the house, the moral maturation, because 
a very simple way to say this is sometimes people don't even realize they're in a in a dilemma. Sometimes people don't even know how to think about this space, correct? Yeah, and that's something that's really interesting is you can take two people that can go through the same experience and some will uh, have the radar go off, you know, that, hey, there, there's some moral issues here that we need to think about. Somebody else might not even recognize that and just think of it as a business decision that needs to be made, not a business decision that's interlaced with ethical challenges or implications. So on the, the moral maturation side of the house, that the ability to be morally mature, we did first start with the, the research from people like Kohlberg and others where they looked at how people develop complexity in their schemas, their mental models about ethics, which makes them more attuned to what's going on around them and able to process complex information, moral information that might come to them. So there's a developmental perspective here of, of developing that um, those rich schemas or what we call moral complexity. And there's been some other research on, on moral complexity. But you know beyond the, the moral complexity piece, you also have to have the ability to process that rich information, which is moral metacognition. Uh, for the listeners out there that might not have heard that term, you know there's cognition thinking, then there's metacognition, which is you know the higher level, which is thinking about your thinking. It's the ability to, to not just process what's happening in the moment, but to even think about how am I processing this? Am I considering all the factors? Am I considering all the implications on all stakeholders in this particular issue? Have I looked at this through numerous multiple ethical lenses, not just like to a justice lens, but also thinking about duties and responsibilities and virtue and other potential ways of looking at the same issue. And metacognition is that ability to kind of get off the dance floor, get up on the balcony and think about your own thinking, making sure that you're applying all your moral complexity to the situation at hand. And then lastly, the on the moral maturation side is this idea of moral identity. How do I see myself as a moral actor? And what's my personal identity that I bring to the table? How does that apply here? Because most of the, the work that had been done prior to us on, on moral development, moral maturation is more about what should somebody do in a tough ethical situation. But it's also equally critical that people have to think about who do I need to be in this situation? And bringing that self to the table is uh, a key factor. I personally found it was, you know, as a practicing leader, when I was faced with tough ethical issues, it's not just some abstract moral judgment. It's who do I need to be in this situation? And also what kind of a role model do I want to be for, you know, in my case, for my soldiers in this situation? So that's kind of the moral maturation side of the house, that, that maturity of the individual as a developing moral being. And then the conation side of, of acting, of actually, you know, it's that gap that you said sometimes can exist. And the, the ownership, this is really, really interesting. The ownership, the efficacy, and then the moral courage. That, because I could have those first five, but do I actually have the courage to step into this, which is going to, you know, put forth any number of different scenarios that I will then have to confront? Yeah. 
And, and that really gets into this, this thing I was talking about earlier, Scott, with the, the judgment action gap. You could do everything right on the moral maturation side, make a great decision. You know, and I might go home and say, yeah, you know, I'm going to go in and confront my boss tomorrow morning. And, you know, I got this all wired in my head. And then you get your cup of coffee in the morning and you walk in the office and it's like, ah, gosh, you know, is this really something I should be doing? Or should maybe their boss be the one calling them out on it? Is this really my responsibility? I might be thinking, oh, man, fear. Am I going to get fired? You know, or I might just simply be thinking, you know, I don't have the, the confidence in myself that I can address this with him. Maybe I'm not confident that I've even made the right decision. You know, maybe he or she is right versus me, or maybe I don't feel confident I have the social skills to, to have this uh, interaction, you know, with this individual. So the, the moral conation piece has those three elements. Number one is, am I going to take ownership? Instead of saying, well, somebody ought to do something, you know, that I ought to do something. Second, do I have the, the courage to overcome fear, to overcome risk, and to step up and do what's right? And then third, do I have the confidence? Even if I, could, if I feel, hey, yeah, okay, I'll, I've got the courage to go ahead and, and do this. Am I confident that I can follow through and be effective at it? And so we found that those three elements are key elements of this idea of moral conation that give people that impetus to act to overcome that judgment action gap. Sean, you had mentioned when we started that these are even that, that over the course of your military career, you had experienced some of those ethical dilemmas yourself as a leader. So what are a couple examples from your career where upon reflection, you know, I, I thought to myself, oh, I really did a great job with that. And what's an example maybe where upon reflection, you could have done something a little differently? Yeah, well, those are tough questions. <laughs> um, you know, like I mentioned, I, I've, I've faced some pretty, pretty tough situations um, that require a lot of uh, moral maturation and a lot of moral coordination. But, you know, one of the things, too, I, I want to really push out there to uh, the listeners that ethics should be a team sport in an organization. It shouldn't just be some leader sitting there, you know, the grand leader making the decision. Often these, these tough ones have so many pieces and so many elements and so much complexity that it's good to get everybody's perspective in the room, you know, and I, I it was rare that I made decisions on my own when it was the tough ones. But um, like, I'll, I'll give you an example of one that I, I share sometimes um, after Operation Desert Storm back in the, the, the 1990, early 90s. When uh, the main battle was over, I was part of 7th Corps, which was the, the main attack element during, during Operation Desert Storm. We had 150,000 soldiers just in our Corps. And when we had attacked into deep into Iraq, uh, we had established what's called a military demarcation line. So anytime the Army is at war, eventually we kind of draw a line in the sand and call it a military demarcation line. And it's it's essentially a, a temporary international border so that we could go into treaty negotiations with the other side. So once we had, had defeated the Iraqi army, we, we pulled up onto this line, this military demarcation line into a defensive position. Well, General Schwarzkopf, the central command commander, could go into treaty negotiations with the Iraqis. Well, my unit was up right on that line in a defensive posture. And we were under strict orders that we were not allowed to use any hostile force across the MDL, that we were to treat that as an international boundary, international border. That now is, again, 
Iraqi sovereign territory and, until told otherwise. And we could only use force and self-defense. Well, the Iraqis were bringing women and children out in front of our lines and executing them, even young children and, and, and women, just to taunt us right in front of our lines, like half a football field away. And here we are with these strict orders that, that we're not allowed to do anything uh, in, in this situation. So if you think about that from a simple standpoint, we might say, okay, I'm, I'm under orders. I have a duty. I should follow the rules, right? Well, you know, with moral maturation, we've got to look at all the aspects of this. So duty is certainly one element. You know, we're, we're under the duty to, uh, um, to follow orders. I mean, we obviously can't have chaos on the battlefield with soldiers running around doing whatever they want to do. But when we think about duties, we also have to think about, well, you know, these other people have rights, too, that are being executed. They have inalienable human rights. And do we have a duty to protect them if we're able to? Well, might, might we do, you know? But we also have to look at you know, what they call uh, teleological or uh, utility type of, of ethics, you know, utilitarianism. Well, okay, what if we act or don't act in this case? You know, might we restart the war? Uh, you know, might we get some of our soldiers killed? Might some of our soldiers be court-martialed for disobeying a lawful order? We got to look at all the tentacles of the possible outcomes if we act or if we don't act and, and you know, continues to fuel this situation with these women and children being being killed or look at it through a, what they call an aerotheological lens or a virtue-based lens. You know, what would a good right person do in this situation? You know, so you start thinking about, like I mentioned earlier, these different lenses of looking at an, an issue, like through a rights and duties lens, a, a virtue-based lens, a utilitarian outcome type of base lens, and there's others. And, and you start seeing that, wow, this is not a simple, simple issue. You know, how do we deal with this? How do we make the decision? And then, and then the co-nation to act on that decision, you know, and, um, you know, we, we really were, were pretty torn about this. And again, team, team sport, right? A lot of leaders in the room talking about what we should do. And so, you know, we started to kind of go into some gray areas. We, we rushed the line with some, you know, tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles to try to, you know, scare them off the next time that happened, which didn't work. And then we eventually fired some artillery across the line over their heads uh, in, in illumination flares instead of high explosives. Just kind of give them a warning, you know, that we got you in range. If, if we wanted to, we could use HE high explosive. And, and then they stopped doing it. And we're very you know, thankful that they did because the next level of escalation, uh, you know, would have certainly potentially broke our our duties to, you know, law and order and the, the, the orders of the, the leaders on top of us. And, you know, we got in trouble for even firing the artillery across the line. It was not within the rules of engagement we were given. But, you know, again, it's, it's having that, you know, that ownership and courage to say, we're not just going to let this happen. You know, we're going to do something. We're going to push the envelope, maybe take on some personal risk ourselves, because, you know, again, some of our leaders weren't too happy that we, we fired the artillery. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll take that and uh you know and live with it so but you can see there i think you know that's a complex situation he's a lot of moral maturation to process it but then you know you also have to have that that co-nation then to say you know, i'm going to do something about this and, and and work within the bounds the best you can to to make it happen and i mentioned earlier you know moral identity we also had to think about who do we want to be and and how do i want my soldiers to feel when they redeploy back home after this um, you know, I, I, I did not want them to redeploy back home 
with that on their minds that, you know, we watched that and did absolutely nothing. That's not who I wanted to be. It's not who I wanted them to see themselves as. It's such a wonderful way to think about this topic and, and even your phrasing of ethics as a team sport. Talk a little bit more about that. I love that phrasing. I, I'd never heard it before, Sean. Well, I, I yeah, I use that a lot. I, I say a lot of things are a team sport, you know, I mean, and that's what I learned. That's what I learned in the military. You know, you, a, a team is always better than one. And, and leaders who think that they're going to just sit up there and lead on their own are fools because, you, again, you're not maximizing the the talent, skills, abilities, knowledge of your team. And uh, so, you know, you bring your, your team of leaders together. You know, if, if I'm a captain, I'm going to bring my lieutenants together and as much as possible share leadership to try to make decisions together. I mean, sure, at the end of the day, I'll make the final call. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to at any time possible you know, pull in their ideas and pick from the best and then sanction those ideas. It's the same with ethics. If we think about moral maturation, a key component of that being moral complexity. Well, the more minds you have in the room, the more complex the team will be to think through creative options. It was others that brought up these ideas about, you know, rushing the lines and, and firing the artillery uh, illumination rounds and things like that, you know, and it's like, great idea. Let's do that, you know. Um, and so there's a there's a, a big value in, in bringing teams when it comes to this stuff. The first side of the house is really, in some ways, at least how I'm reflecting on it right now, is some of the pre-work that an individual is going to do, some of the work that occurs ahead of the time. Uh, I think this is probably why only going through case studies and, and reflecting on what potentially Enron should have done uh, probably is only a piece of the puzzle, a, a, a relatively small piece of the puzzle. Because then, as you said, there's that inner work within myself. And uh, so as you think about training individuals, how do you think about that? How do you think about educating individuals so they are better prepared with both sides of the house in, in consideration of that curriculum? Yeah. Um, you know, and again, I, uh, I take a lot of my experience from, from the military where we have a saying, we train like we fight. And we, we train in, in realistic situations as much as possible. So when we're training, we're introducing moral ethical challenges all the time. We purposely plan them into the training. And uh, even, even during operations, we make sure that we pre-think through those dilemmas that we might face. Good leaders pull their team together and say, all right, we're about ready to go in this village. You know, let's say take down a potential terrorist cell. Well, we're going to think through, all right, what are those, not just the operational challenges we're going to have, but also what are the moral ethical challenges? And in the military, we, in our planning, we have a phase we call red teaming, where we take any one of our plans and we, we war game it and we look at all the possible decision points we might hit and the contingency plans we need to have in place and, and pre-think through all of those, those possible challenges we're going to face. Some of those are operational. You know, what, what if uh, we start getting low on ammunition? What if the enemy tries to flank us? Whatever. Some of those are also moral ethical. What if the, uh, if the terrorists use hostages as human shields or women and children as, as human shields? What are we going to do? I don't want a 18, 19 year old kid sitting behind the, the sights of an M16 trying to make that decision in, in you know, 0.8 seconds. I want the team to think about that ahead of time. 
and pre-plan what we might do, work through that scenario planning and, and become much more adept at it and, and be able to evoke the the thoughtful process that we had ahead of time versus an emotionally laden process in the moment. Well, Sean, I know you all continued this work. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because the And I'm going to put the paper in the show notes so that people have access to that. But talk a little bit about how this work then proceeded from this original paper. Sure. So the, the, the Academy of Management Review paper was a conceptual paper. It was a theory paper to create the basis of the the knowledge and the theory underneath the framework. Then we focused in predominantly on the moral potency piece because there's already certain measures and assessments and research done uh, on the moral maturation piece, not not integrated like we show it where you have you know maturation and you know the complexity, the identity, and the moral metacognition all integrated into a whole model. But there there had been individual research on each of those those streams just kind of yet to be integrated. So we thought the biggest bang for the buck was trying to address this judgment action gap, that 80% loss that I talked about between, you know, hey, I made a judgment and then actually acting on it. So we developed a, a measure that's called moral potency. Um, you know, to be honest with you, we, we like the word, word uh, moral conation, but, uh, you know, in science, you got to get stuff through reviewers. And we had a, a reviewer that uh, didn't like the word moral conation. And uh, so we went back on them about three times and they wouldn't budge, even though they, they, they wouldn't tell us what scientifically they had an issue with that term. So we said, all right, we'll call it moral potency. So, John, John, yeah. was this reviewer number two? <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. I, I probably had a different name for him than reviewer number two. But uh, you know, I, I have no problem. The review process is great, but a reviewer owes scientific logic back to the you know to the <laughs> author, which was not provided this time. But anyways, I, I don't want to digress. So um, you know, we we wound up calling it moral moral potency, um, but it's the same thing. So for the reviewers out there. I mean, sorry, the reviewers, the uh, listeners out there, if you hear moral conation and moral potency, they're kind of one and the same. Although their moral conation, again, is an idea, this impetus to act. Moral or moral potency is those three constructs as one way to measure moral conation. So to be honest with you, I'm not too upset about it because it does leave room for others to think about different ways of operationalizing and testing moral uh, conation, you know, besides those three constructs. But so we, we went forward and we, we created a measure of moral potency that has moral ownership, moral courage and moral efficacy or, or confidence in it that was published in the uh, consulting psychology journal. And then we went forward and started doing some research using those different scales in uh, different papers. And so we've got some papers that are published in Academy Management Journal and other top uh, journals, Journal Applied Psychology and some others where we use these scales to uh, integrate into models of moral ethical decision making and action in, in teams. What are a couple insights from some of that research that you would want listeners to know about? Yeah, well, I mean, we found we, we did a big study actually in in Iraq, uh, not during Desert Storm, but in the, you know, the more current wars that we've been in for the last two decades. We did uh, what, what is the largest study ever done in combat, um, in, in actual combat. So we had chaplains because the 
the religious chaplains, they have to circulate the battlefield anyways uh, to go around and give religious services and support to the soldiers. So we leverage them as they're driving around the battlefield and visiting these small outposts all over um, that they would also deliver surveys to the to the soldiers that are out there to get their true insights on on what's going on. So we uh, we found that uh, ethical leadership and ethical culture, for example, was uh, a key predictor of moral efficacy in the soldiers. That soldiers had much more confidence to act morally when they were in an ethical culture and had an ethical leader that uh, that instilled in them that you know that that confidence to step up and act when when they felt they need to. I think some of that, again, is those type of leaders, they, they are active in introducing these conversations in the team. They you know, talk about this stuff. We train about it. We, we red team and rehearse these things. And we, we uh, gain the skills that we ne- needed through training and through these conversations to act as, as need be. Um, we, we published another paper. That was an Academy of Management Journal. We uh, published another paper in Journal of Applied Psychology where we used the moral uh, courage measure as a mediator and uh, found that abusive supervision was reducing soldiers' uh, moral courage, which then resulted in, in more moral infractions. And the earlier paper I mentioned about Academy Management Journal is also tied to you know, moral infractions in, in units when you had a less ethical leader, less ethical culture and climate, lowered the efficacy, also lowered the you know, the moral ethical actions of soldiers on the battlefield. The leadership matters, you know, and that's the one thing that we're finding. There's other people that have used uh, our measure, the moral potency measure that Bruce Volio and I published. Um, and it's, it's showing, you know, across the board that leadership and the team, those external um, factors are, are critical in driving moral potency in, in team members. Well, Sean, you have such an interesting purview as editor, editor in chief. Uh, I, I would love to switch gears a little bit into what you see as opportunities for leadership studies. I, I think I'm really, really interested in knowing what are three or four potential streams that you think as an editor in chief, wow, this is just a gap. This is a ripe area for people to really dig into or build upon Uh, because obviously in this work we've just been discussing you built and like you said you integrated some things that hadn't been framed the way you all did and you're moving that forward what do you see well yeah so i you know i desk review close to 900 papers a year um, that come into the journal leadership and organizational studies Um, and it's interesting we're getting um, we're getting a lot of high quality papers now. You know, we, the current editorial board, we took over the journal about two years ago and you know, we, we created, you know, a rock star editorial board. We've got people like Bruce Avolio, Tim Judge, David Waldman, Joyce Bono, Don Von Nippenberg. We've got John Shabrock, all his senior editors on this journal. So we have like some of the top leadership researchers in the world. And we're, we are really trying to push, push the envelope. Um, we brought on a bunch of you know top associate editors, Ron Riggio, we got Ron Piccolo, Don Stom, Lisa Dragoni, you know, Barbara Wise, Ann Peng, Hannes Leroy, we've got uh, Stephanie Johnson, Yair Burson, 
you know, just, just great people that are, are, are really trying to push the field forward. So, we, you know, we, we created a new mission statement, um, a new vision statement for the journal to try to really expand out. What, what's been happening in, in the leadership field is a lot of just, you know, let me add one more box or one more arrow to a existing academic model, you know, theoretical model. And if you've got, you know, whiz-bang new methods, those papers are getting published even in the top journals in the field. And we, we really want to try to push the field to try some different new things. Now, some of that is new methodologies. I mean, you got machine learning coming out, uh, neuroscience. Like, you know, I've, I've been publishing some research using neuroscience as a, as a technique, um, which not only brings new measurement techniques into the, the field, but also brings in new science into the field, a, a totally way of looking at leadership instead of personalities or states or traits, looking at it from the actual neurological functioning of the individual. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, to look at leadership. Um, so besides the new methods and, and having a little bit more openness to that, also I would say qualitative research. Qualitative research, if done right, and it's hard to do qualitative research right, can really kind of get at the phenomenon, you know, that what is really happening in the situation that people are dealing with, not just what, you know, constructs a, a investigator decided to put into a survey, but really going in and saying, what is going on here uh, in this leadership situation? So we're trying to promote more of that. Um, as far as what to study, I, you know, the biggest thing that needs to be studied is what are the antecedents to leadership? There is a dearth of research on what drives leaders to think and act in different ways. And that's a, a huge area that if we're going to get into leader development, which is the second area I was going to say that needs a lot of research, we first have to understand what are the antecedents that are driving leaders' decisions and behaviors. Then we have to think about how do we develop those things. And so um, one of the, the toughest things in, in leadership research is doing leader development research because it's hard work. It requires having a sample that you can track over an extended period of time. It, it requires having some sort of a controller comparison group so that you can show, you know, the treatment group really did change. You know, a lot of leadership interventions for development all have to be packaged together. And that's tough work. It takes a lot of time, effort. It takes organizations that are willing to support that and allow you to come in and do that over time. And, you know, quite frankly, I think because of those barriers um, and, you know, some of those are the scholars themselves, just not wanting to invest that much time and effort and energy into it. We just we have very minimal studies that are true experimental studies that are tracking leader development. You know, we uh, Bruce Avolio and I had a bunch of colleagues published a uh, meta-analysis back, gosh, I don't know, 15 years ago or something where we looked at every leadership intervention study done over the last 100 years. Yes, that was the 100 years. Was that the 100 years paper? It, it was 100 years. Yeah, I can't remember the title of it. Um, it was, there, there, we did, there was a couple of papers. One actually had like 100 years in the title, and there was one that we published in Leadership Quarterly that um, I think didn't have that in the title, but you know, reviewers can look it up. But we're in the middle of, uh, of doing a new one now and updating it with newer studies. But one of the things that shocked us was the dearth of studies that are even available to put into the meta-analysis that met our criteria of truly being leader development intervention studies 
that that showed growth. You know, they had a causal, causally interpreted, uh, you know, model. Any others come to mind as we kind of wind down our time to get today? Any other areas? Antecedents, leader development. Antecedents, leader development, I think, are things that, that need the most work. And then third would be just other contextual factors. I, I think in, in leadership research, we tend to focus too much on the leader's impact on individuals versus looking at the fact that you usually have multiple levels of leadership that those same followers are exposed to. You know, two levels up, three levels up leaders. Understanding that that bigger system. Also understanding how they interact with their team members and the context in the team, but even with other teams. Uh, a lot of the consulting work that I do are with uh, organizations that have a lot of cross-functional teams and, you know, they have to lead each other. Right? And, what, and the decisions and actions that followers make in their team are influenced by their membership on these other teams and the actions and the constraints they have because they also have to serve on these other task forces in cross-functional teams. And so I just think, a, you know, a generally broader understanding of the multitude of factors that are influencing followers um, in the leadership situation, you know, is, is critical. To equip peer leadership, shared leadership, multiple sources of leadership, all, all uh, impacting the individual. Well, Sean, as we close down our conversation, what have you been reading or streaming or listening to that's caught your eye in the last few months, other than those 900 you know, <laughs> desk <Yeah>. reviews? <laughs> yeah, that pretty much consumes, that pretty much consumes uh, most, of, uh, most of my time, to be honest with you. I don't do much like popular reading. I just simply don't have the, the bandwidth uh, you know, for it. I, I, I do sometimes like to get into thinking through historical figures and, and learning from, from some of them. So like I just read His Excellency, which is a great book about George Washington. Uh, I, I published not too long ago a, uh, a paper. It's available if anybody out there want to pull it down off either Apple or, uh, or was it the Amazon one, um, for free about George Washington and character that was commissioned by the Mount Vernon Society there up at Mount Vernon. George Washington's home. But we take a look at George Washington and we apply his character and uh, especially to the Newburgh address, the possible conspiracy there in Newburgh that uh, George Washington had overturned and just how his character came to light to, to change the fate of history in the Newburgh conspiracy. So I think sometimes if we think about historical figures like that and the actions and decisions they made and how it positively affected groups. It's, um, it's pretty enlightening for, for current leaders. So I'm doing a, a consulting uh, event here next week where we're going to use that reading about George Washington character to have a CEO and their top management team reflect on their character and how it affects their leadership at the strategic level. So we can find a lot of those kind of parallels. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. You've given us a lot of great, great wisdom in the last, oh, I don't know, 39 minutes. <laughs> so thank you for the good work that you do, sir. We appreciate it. Have a great rest of your summer. All right. Thanks. Good to be with you, Scott. So some quotes from guests will just forever stick with me. When Dr. Livingston said, 
When it comes to mental gymnastics, most humans are Olympians, or most of us are Olympians. That's going to stick with me. And uh, same with Dr. Hannah here, uh, when he said ethics is a team sport. I don't know why, I just find that really uh, comforting in some ways. But I also think of it as a, a paradigm shift for me when it comes to this topic. Ethics is a team sport. So I'm going to leave it there because I think it's an important place. If you are looking to learn more about Dr. Hannah's work, it's in the show notes. Take a look. Look at his scholarship. It's absolutely incredible, just incredible thinking and wonderful contributions to the field. And as he's, even as he was describing some of the work they've done literally in theater, it's just so very impressive. And as I said, how wonderful to have an individual who is working at the highest levels of scholarship, having worked at some of the highest levels of his craft uh, as an experienced scholar. I think that's just absolutely wonderful. As always, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Take care. Be well. See you soon. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.